This morning's reading is uh, chapter 42 from the book of Genesis. When Jacob learned that there was grain in Egypt, he said to his sons, Why do you just keep looking at each other? He continued, I've heard that there is grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy some for us, so that we may live and not die. Then ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain from Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with the others, because he was afraid that harm might come to him. So Israel's sons were among those who went to buy grain, for the famine was in the land of Canaan also. Now Joseph was the governor of the land, the one who sold grain to all its people. So when Joseph's brothers arrived, they bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. As soon as Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them, but he pretended to be a stranger and spoke harshly to them. Where do you come from? he asked. From the land of Canaan, they replied, to buy food. Although Joseph recognized his brothers, they did not recognize him. Then he remembered his dreams about them and said to them, You are spies. You have come to see where our land is unprotected. No, my lord, they answered. Your servants have come to buy food. We are all the sons of one man. Your servants are honest men, not spies. No, he said to them. You have come to see where our land is unprotected. But they replied, Your servants were twelve brothers, the son of one man who lives in the land of Canaan. The youngest is now with our father, and one is no more. Joseph said to them, It is just as I told you, you are spies, and this is how you will be tested. As surely as Pharaoh lives, you will not leave this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of your number to get your brother. The rest of you will be kept in prison so that your words may be tested, to see if you are telling the truth. If you are not, then surely as Pharaoh lives, you are spies. And he put them all in custody for three days. On the third day, Joseph said to them, Do this, and you will live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers stay here in prison, while the rest of you go and take grain back for your starving households. But you must bring your youngest brother to me, so that your words may be verified, and that you may not die. This they proceeded to do. They said to one another, Surely we are being punished because of our brother. We saw how distressed he was when he pleaded with us for his life, but we would not listen, and that's why this distress has come upon us. Reuben replied, Didn't I tell you not to sin against the boy? But you wouldn't listen. Now we must give an accounting for his blood. They did not realize that Joseph could understand them, since he was using an interpreter. He turned away from them and began to weep, but then turned back and spoke to them again. He had Simeon taken from them and bound before their eyes. Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain, to put each man's silver back in his sack, and to give them provisions for their journey. After this was done for them, they loaded their grain on their donkeys and left. At the place where they stopped for the night, one of them opened his sack to get feed for his donkey, and he saw his silver in the mouth of his sack. My silver has been returned, he said to his brothers. Here it is, in my sack. Their hearts sank, and they turned to each other trembling and said, What is this that God has done to us? When they came to their father Jacob in the land of Canaan, they told them all that had happened to them. They said, The man who was lord over the land spoke harshly to us and treated us as though we were spying on the land. But we said to him, We are honest men. We are not spies. We were twelve brothers, sons of one father. One is no more, and the youngest is now with our father in Canaan. Then the man who was lord over the land said to us, This is how I will know whether you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers here with me and take food for your starving households and go. But bring your youngest brother to me, so that I will know that you are not spies, but honest men. Then I will give your brother back to you, and you can trade in the land. 
As they were emptying their sacks, there in each man's sack was his pouch of silver. When they and their father saw the money pouches, they were frightened. Their father Jacob said to them, You have deprived me of my children. Joseph is no more, and Simeon is no more, and now you want to take Benjamin. Everything is against me. Then Reuben said to his father, You may put both of my sons to death if I do not bring him back to you. Entrust him to my care, and I will bring him back. But Jacob said, My son will not go down there with you. His brother is dead, and he's the only one left. If harm comes to him on the journey you are taking, you will bring my grey head down to the grave in sorrow. I'm going to pray and ask God to help us with, uh, as we spend a little bit more time in this passage. Father, please calm our hearts and our minds. Help us not to be distracted by the things that we were doing earlier this morning or about what's going to be happening later on today. Help us to sit in your word and let your spirit who inspired these words, the same spirit who dwells in those of us who are trusting in Jesus, move us to know you and to love you and to trust you more. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I had a dream the other night. I was officiating at a wedding. This is something that I have done many times. But uh, in this nightmare, when I arrived, I found out the bride and groom had changed the whole service around on me. Don't worry, I can't remember who they were. Okay, uh, just some generic dream bride and groom. Okay. Uh, not only had they ditched the short Bible talk that I was going to give, but the other things, uh, the order of things in the service had totally changed. And the choice of music was a little less palatable than I was anticipating. And on top of that, I'd forgotten all my notes. But I gathered myself sufficiently uh, to roll with it. I thought, well, I've done this heaps of times before. I'll be fine. I'll just do it from memory. But then the service starts and I got up to do uh, my what marriage is all about according to the Bible bit uh, and ended up repeating myself on certain points over and over again because I, I couldn't quite remember what to say. And then I was interrupted uh, frequently by some colourful child making animal noises uh, to the point where everyone uh, ends up just staring at me and I gape with my mouth open, uh, saying nothing and my face flushing with embarrassment and uh, then I woke up. And I felt instant relief. The last wedding that I took, I loved it. It was awesome. Uh, it was an app, it was a dream to do. <laughs> so I'm not sure where this nightmare came from. But as something that I could and did wake up from, I reckon it's a helpful illustration to start off with as we come to this passage in Genesis. Because in this story, we see life as dreamed of by God being a bit of a nightmare for the many in it. A nightmare that we all feel at times and perhaps can't wake up from. But a nightmare that God allows so that we might wake up to his big, big dream for us. So that's where we're going today in the passage to see, firstly, the nightmare of famine, guilt and grief in this life. And secondly, God's severe mercy in his dream for us. But first, let's uh, recap on where we are so far in the story of Genesis. Last week, Jamie reminded us of where Joseph has come from. 
uh, sold into slavery by his jealous older brothers, falsely accused by the wife of his Egyptian boss and chucked into jail, and then catapulted from being a prisoner to the Prime Minister of Egypt. All because he interprets a dream that Pharaoh has. Pharaoh dreams of seven fat cows getting gobbled up by seven skinny cows, and seven thin heads of grain swallowing up seven good heads of grain, and none of the magicians or the wise men uh, in Pharaoh's court can interpret this dream for him, but Joseph, who's known for rightly interpreting dreams, tells Pharaoh this. Back in chapter uh, 41, tells Pharaoh, God has shown Pharaoh what he is about to do. Seven years of great abundance are coming throughout the land of Egypt, but seven years of famine will follow them. And so Pharaoh sets Joseph up as the governor of Egypt, as basically the prime minister, uh, the prime minister to look after the collection of the grain in the years of plenty so that there's enough grain during the years of famine, which he does. And as all the nations struggle through seven years of famine, everyone ends up coming to Egypt and coming to Joseph to get grain, even his own family, and that's where we pick up the story. And our first point, the nightmare of famine, guilt, and grief. Now, last week, Jamie mentioned some stats of uh, famines back in the day, back in those days, which were so bad they led to parents eating their own children because they were so starved. You'd have to be out of your mind hungry to do that, wouldn't you? But being desperately hungry does something to people. It strips things back to to the important things, the matters of life and death. It makes one desperate for whatever gives life in the face of death. As Joseph, uh, Joseph's dad, Jacob, comments. So verse 1 of uh, chapter 42. When Jacob learned that there was grain in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you get just keep looking at each other? He continued, I've heard that there's some grain in, in Egypt. Go down there and buy some for us so that we may live and not die. When it comes to matters of life and death, like a famine, uh, whatever isn't helping just seems to come into sharper relief, doesn't it? Uh, like all those end of the world as we know it movies and TV series. You know, the greatest threat to life is often not the zombies or the scarcity of food or the airborne diseases or even the physical challenges. The greatest threat is actually the lack of trust between the survivors, right? Can you trust Jadis in The Walking Dead or not? And so, so it is with Jacob's family. Famine is a great threat. But perhaps even more so is their dysfunctional relationships. Uh, There's something not quite right between the sons. Why do you just keep looking at each other, Jacob says. There's a famine and they're not doing anything to get through it. There's something dysfunctional between them. So dysfunctional it's deadly. And the famine only highlights this. Now, remember this is the family of God's promises, right? The people God made promises to, promises that they'd be his special people and he'd be their God. That through them he would bless the whole world. And yet here, they're staring at each other like they're just waiting to die, let alone bless anyone else. Surely this isn't what God wants for them. And yet I reckon they'd be some of the first to be bleakly saying to each other at this time, living the dream. And I wonder if sometimes we might get to a similar point. Like we're just waiting to die. And we might not say it like that, that's very bleak, but we might instead say we just don't want to live the life we're living because we're starved of whatever it might be, purpose or satisfaction or fun or love or money, but we can't see a way out and so we just end up staring at each other, paralysed with indecision. You know, like Jacob, 
and his sons, life is a nightmare of famine. Not just of famine, but of guilt too. As we see, all the sons go down to Egypt and they're confronted by their guilt over what they've done and did to their brother Joseph. Yeah, Joseph, he's now the governor of the land. He's the prime minister. He recognises his brothers. They don't recognise him. He speaks harshly to them. He falsely calls them spies, which they deny, but he keeps the ruse up. He demands that they prove their honesty, that they bring their youngest brother to him, Benjamin, who's stayed with their father back in Canaan. And as they proceed to do this, they say to one another, verse 21, Surely we're being punished because of our brother. We saw how distressed he was when we pleaded, when he pleaded for, with his, with us for his life, but we wouldn't listen. That's why this distress has come upon us. Reuben replied, didn't I tell you not to sin against the boy? But you wouldn't listen. Now we must give an accounting for his blood. Jacob's sons, they see the nightmare they've got themselves into as punishment. You know, punishment for those many years ago when they sold Joseph as a slave. Punishment for not listening to him as he pleaded for his life. Punishment for callously not caring whether he lived or died. Punishment for his actual death, as Reuben thinks, uh, which he thinks will end in their own death. They have to give an accounting for his blood. Which he thinks will actually end in their own deaths, which is chillingly anticipated as they find the silver, their silver returned in their bags as they go home with grain. Verse 28, their hearts sank and they turned to each other, trembling, and said, what is this that God has done to us? To return to Egypt now, to prove that they're not spies, but this time looking like thieves as well, that'll only seal their fates. It's a, it's a death sentence. And they see this as God's punishment for their guilt. That there's nothing for it, they're guilty, God's just, and so they're dead men walking. They see their guilt as the defining factor in their relationship with God. Not his promises, not his love for them, and so their guilt is actually killing their hope. It would seem they're destined to live in a world where no new thing can be anticipated. Their guilt is a, is a nightmare of their own making that they have no hope of waking up from. And maybe that's where we might live some of the time, or maybe a lot of the time. We think of ourselves as the person who did that really bad thing. That defines who we are and how we think of ourselves, perhaps even how we talk about ourselves. And our imagination is stymied and we feel disqualified from having dreams and hopes and joy. It's a nightmare we can't wake up from and one we just can't seem to live without because it's the punishment we know we deserve. Like with Jacob and his sons, life is a nightmare of famine and guilt. And of grief. As we see, Jacob defined by his grief at the loss of his son, Joseph. You know, the brothers return, they tell what's happened, how Simeon's now in, still in custody, and the Prime Minister is demanding they bring their youngest brother Benjamin back to him to prove their honesty. They find the silver in their bags and Jacob says in verse 36, You have deprived me of my children. Joseph is no more and Simeon is no more and now you just want to take Benjamin. Everything is against me. And then in verse 38, he says, My son will not go down there with you. Benjamin will not go. His brother is dead, Joseph is dead, and he is the only one left. If harm comes to him on the journey you're taking, you will bring my grey head down to the grave in sorrow. 
at Jacob's, Jacob's grief for Joseph and his anticipated grief for ben- Benjamin blocks him from taking any new action. My son will not go down there with you. Jacob's so wed to his grief, he doesn't have to lose, even have to lose Benjamin. Just think about losing him to fret and to start grieving in anticipation. You know, when he's first told Joseph is gone, he refuses to be comforted. We're told that in chapter 37. And it seems he's hanging on to that grief or the thought of future grief, literally to the grave. Grief defines him. And it distorts his love. Yeah, despite having ten other sons, one of them, Simeon, still alive in prison in Egypt, but he's already decided that he's no more. <laughs> All he can think about is his lost son Joseph and his youngest son Benjamin. His brother is dead, and he is the only one left. Grief defines Jacob and it distorts his love. Grief is the nightmare he lives in fear of the dream he doesn't. And I wonder if that's where we might find ourselves sometime too. Defined and distorted by our grief. Afraid of letting go of something or someone, that Benjamin, whatever that thing or person might be, because it's a surrogate of a thing or person we lost that we never got over. Or a stand-in for the thing that we were never able to have. But we cling to it. Cling to it so desperately because we're afraid that if we don't, it'll be lost and our hearts will be broken. But in so doing, we end up doing two other things. First, we smother or break the thing or person we're clinging to under the impossible weight of our grief. And second, we end up blocking anything new because we can't imagine a new life beyond that loss, a life beyond our grief. And so here in this story, we see the unholy trinity of famine, guilt and grief at work, unstoppable and petrifying in their power, weaving a nightmare of a life. A life, I suspect, we've all known in more or less ways. A life that we all will know in more or less ways. And perhaps we've felt such a life, it's like Botox to the heart and being tempted to think any resistance is futile. Until we see these nightmares are all serving God's dream for us. Recently I've been uh, introduced to a thing called Crip Time. Uh, Crip Time is is shorthand in disability culture. Shorthand for what disability scholars argue requires people to measure time differently requires people to account for the different ways different people move through the world. Crip time is not the time tasks require, but the time bodies require. It's a whole new perspective on how we see time as the servant of people, not projects. I think it helpfully puts how we see time in perspective. And in the same way, it's helpful to see our present nightmares in a new perspective a new better perspective as serving God's dream for us. Which brings us to the second point. God's severe mercy in his dream for us. Because this family, Jacob and his sons, they're God's chosen people and he has a dream for them. He gave it to Joseph way back 
when he was a kid living at home. It fueled his brother's jealousy of him and it ended up with them selling him off as a slave. Here's Joseph's dream. Back in chapter 37, Joseph had a dream and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. Then he had another dream and he told it to his brothers. Listen, he said, I had another dream. and This time the sun and moon and eleven stars were bowing down to me. When he told his father as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, What is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? The answer is yes. They will. But this isn't a bad thing. It's a good thing. And we'll ultimately find that out as the story goes on. Joseph recognises his brothers 13 years later, verse 6, back in chapter 42, when Joseph's brothers arrived, they bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. Dream fulfilled. And then verse 9, then he remembered his dreams about them and he said to them, you are spies, you come to see where our land is unprotected. It's the dream that shapes the way Joseph reacts to his brothers the dream that they bow down to him. But what's his motive here in calling them spies? Some think he's punishing them, giving them a taste of their own medicine, accusing them of being spies, tying them in knots and plots, demanding they return with Benjamin, keeping Simeon in jail, planting the silver in their bags to make it look like they're thieves too. But others think that uh, Joseph, his motives are not quite that uh, harsh, that he's testing his brother's honesty check their trustworthy so he can entrust himself to them. Whatever his motive, God uses the nightmare of the famine and the brother's guilt to transform them, to transform them from being untrustworthy to trustworthy, from relationally dysfunctional to functional. And God uses the nightmare of their father's grief, Jacob, his grief, to not only uh, accentuate the joy of having the dead come back to life, which we'll see later in the story as the end goal of God's dream to Joseph as they reunite. To reunite Jacob and his son, thought dead. But all for Joseph, God's ancient family, they've forgotten this dream. And the promises God made to be their God and they his people. And so at this point, all they see are their nightmares and the devastating paralysis of hopelessness which might be where we feel we're at too sometimes. Perhaps a lot of the time. But this is not uncommon for God's people. Then and now, God allows these nightmares to grow us up. As the Bible says in the letter of James in the New Testament, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. The trials of famine, guilt and grief, they're a severe mercy from God to make us mature, to spiritually grow us up in Jesus. A severe mercy to help us look to and trust in our brother Jesus, who's a greater saviour than Joseph. 
you know, literally back from the dead after being unfairly sentenced to death for our sins, thrown into a pit for our sins and exalted to life eternal to bless us with eternal grain, so to speak, to bless us with eternal forgiveness and eternal restoration to fulfil the dream that God gave him for us, of us bowing down to him in glory and to know that this is what frames our present nightmares of famine, guilt and grief. What puts them in perspective? As the Apostle Paul says in Romans 8, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. And the nature of that glory is being resurrected to eternal life with Jesus in paradise and adoringly bowing down to him. That is the dream, the hope, that God gave Jesus for us. A very good dream. Such that we might even rejoice in our sufferings. As Paul writes in Romans 5, earlier on in that letter, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, not only so that we also, but we also rejoice in our sufferings. Because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. And hope does not disappoint us. Because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit, whom he has given us. Those who are trusting in Jesus, God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. That means we have hope. We know God's dream for us in Jesus. And so we can persevere in the face of nightmares here and now. The nightmares of famine, guilt, and grief. We can see them not as things to eclipse our vision, but merciful moments from God, severe moments, but necessarily severe so that we deeply feel and know our need, our desperate need, our need to satisfy our hungry souls, our need to know and have God's forgiveness, our need to know a life beyond grief and the grave such that we don't get paralysed into doing nothing. But instead... Persevere feeding on Jesus. Persevere knowing God's forgiveness and persevere living in hope in the light of Jesus' dream for us. A dream that is unstoppingly coming true. It will happen. I think I found my next t-shirt. Here it is. 2022, goodbye, in a dumpster on fire. Or even better, that one. (laughs) Do you want me to put in a bulk order, anybody? Yeah. (laughs) There's nothing like a dumpster fire that says goodbye and good riddance. And we might wish that the last few years would just go up in flames. Maybe even this year so far. And yet, despite the nightmares of those years, for me personally, with the famine of confidence and joy, the guilt of having no boundaries and abusing those I love, and the grief of losing trust, by God's severe mercy, allowing me to suffer in those things, I think I've grown up. Or at least become more open to growing up. I've learned to lean less on myself and more on Jesus just as in his dream for me. And isn't that the point? 
How about you? Can you see your present nightmares as God's severe mercy within the context of Jesus' good dream for you? I pray so. I pray so for all of us. And I'm going to pray that now. Almighty God and gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are kind and good and loving. We can trust you, even in the nightmares that you allow in our life. of Famine, guilt, grief. Help us to not let these nightmares eclipse our vision and our heart and paralyze us in fear but to see them in the context of your big dream for us in Jesus and to trust you and to persevere trusting in Jesus and living in hope and knowing your rich, wonderful forgiveness and love for us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.